I don't think I'm saying anything radical in saying that God is not male, right? Any theologian would agree God is creator, not creation. And yet over the last year, I've realized on an even deeper level, this assumption of God's maleness is out there and it's pretty rampant <laughs> among Christian people. And so I think we need to do a good job of unsettling that. Number one, because it's not true. It doesn't respect the transcendence of God. And then it also leads to some damaging lessening of women because this assumption, if if God is male, and again, that's un, uninterrogated. People don't kind of, but it's right there below the surface. God is male, then yeah, actually men, men kind of have a preference or, or, you know, privilege in Christian spaces that women don't have. And I don't think that is the message that we get throughout scripture uh, with the creation of male and female in the image of God, all the way to the inclusion of men and women in the baptismal covenants of the New Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and stages, welcome to this holiday edition of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Uh, I am really, really looking forward to being able to share this conversation with you today from uh, Dr. Amy Peeler. We had a chat about her uh, 2022 book, Women and the Gender of God, and uh, we we conversed just a few weeks ago, but I wanted to kind of hold it to get just a little bit closer to the holiday season because I think this is a, a really important conversation all year round, but connects real nicely with this particular Advent time of year as we're thinking about, you know, the incarnation of of Christ and what does it mean that He was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, we get into some uh, kind of some of the corners of her book here. Uh, not all of them. And so I want to encourage you highly uh, to check out that book however you want to. I, I promote it pretty heavily in the podcast. So this is just a preamble. Really, really worth checking out. Um, and it was such a great uh, conversation with Amy. She was so gracious. She corrected me gently in a few different ways. She uh, And then left me uncorrected in a few other ways when I said some kind of horrendous things. So I uh, appreciated her, uh, just her, her temperament and the way that she approached the conversation altogether. She's uh, brilliant and has a lot to bear. And so this conversation is going to be really good. You're going to like it. Um, so without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with uh, the reverend, not the right reverend, nor the very reverend, but the reverend, uh, Dr. Amy Peeler. You just came from a class. What class was that? So I teach a, a freshman class. It's kind of intro to college, intro to theology. It's the whole thing. And it's really important in our curriculum. And I love doing it. It's a small class size. You get to know them really well. So, and we are starting our unit today on the incarnation, basically. So um, we were reading the nativity texts. Ah, well, you're queued up for a conversation. Exactly. How many students are at Wheaton? So we have like 2,400 undergrad mm -hmm. and about 1,000 grad students okay. in the various programs. Yeah, that's a lot. So that's still a, that's small, a but not, you know, tiny such that we, and we're old, so we have good resources. So yeah, there's lots sure. of blessings here for sure. And how long have you been teaching at Wheaton for? I've been at Wheaton, this is my 12th school year. 
so oh. a while. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is not your first rodeo. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then That's... I was at Indiana Wesleyan for two years before that. Uh, cool. So you just came back from SBL. I'm guessing you did. And so yes, I did. Uh, I was there. Yep. This is uh, so this is not a timeless episode. I mean, we, we already alluded to the fact that we're heading into the Christmas season. And so right. this is a great opportunity to talk about um, incarnation and then to talk about your book. But then also, you know, hey, we, it, it's the end of 2023. And you just mm. came back from the geekiest, uh, nerdiest Bible fest that North America has to offer. Exactly. Um, and so like what was like one of the best things mm. about SBL 23? One of the best things, so there were three different opportunities that I had to discuss my book, two mm. full panels, and then one kind of featuring several books that came out this year. So mm -hmm. I learned a great deal from my respondents. Mm -hmm. So there have been, you know, several reviews, but these were very substantive and gave mm -hmm. me ways to develop my thoughts in deeper and better ways for my future work. So that was an incredible gift to get. I mean, when you write something, you don't know if anybody's going to pay attention at all. Right. Uh, and that it was featured both at ETS as well as SBL, which are very different uh, kind of personas. Uh, that was that was really wonderful. So, hmm. and great. that's it, uh, that's positive. It's positive to hear that because uh, what I'm kind of hearing, and maybe between the lines, is they had questions or they had they had pushback yes, <laughs> on some of your content. Yes. And I'm going to guess that ETS had maybe even more possibly than SBL did. Uh, and then, know, so, the respondents yeah. at ETS were really wonderful. There were some questions from the audience at ETS about which I was nervous. And um, it was civil, but uh, definitely those are spaces where such ideas are not as welcome. I mean, Karen Jobes is now president, so she made this panel. But there are some people, I think, there who wish that scholars like me were not present. Sure. Uh, and that was that was probably communicated in the tone of their questions. But it was civil and we can have exchanges and disagree. That's so. good. That's a good lesson for us all. So the book, the book in question, then the one that we're talking about mm -hmm. here, then the reason that I reached out to you and was so delighted that you made some schedule, uh, some time in your schedule to talk about is women and the gender of God, women and the gender of God. And so, uh, as I would kind of understand it, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly complicated text. I, I like it's not it's readable. It's it's obviously very readable, but I don't know that I would just kind of say, hey, everybody, just just pick right. it up, right? Like maybe there's kind of like a you know, there's like, you know, highly kind of involved monographs. And then there's like the, the stuff that you can kind of take to the bathroom with you with a cup of coffee yeah. and kind of work through some of it. And I'd say that maybe this particular text resides somewhere in the middle. The mm -hmm. footnotes are uh, very, very helpful to kind of point you back into some deeper learning if you want to. But even just kind of reading through the, the main text is it's heady. Mm -hmm. um, so let me start by asking, and this will be a question that you get all the time. And so you've, you've had a chance to, you know, workshop it and workshop it, but like, why write this particular text? Mm -hmm. I really appreciate your assessment of kind of where it hits. Interestingly, I first planned this book as a textbook in this freshman class that I've ah. just walked out of ah. uh, because each faculty member gets to you go through like 12 weeks of shared material and then you have several weeks to focus on your own research. And I thought, oh, this is I want to give a textbook for young students to wrestle with God language. What do we do with this concept of God as father? How does the incarnation figure into this? This is the first year that I could have assigned this book, and I chose not to do so mm. because it is more in-depth. I wanted to show my work in this 
uh, instance and to show my work really about those questions. Fatherhood language is so prominent and there are reasons why it is problematic. We have to attend to the patriarchal structures in which scripture was written. But I wasn't satisfied with that answer. Oh, it's just culture because God can transgress culture at times. God is not bound to the cultures in which scripture came, although God is attentive to them so that people can understand. And so that was the driving intellectual question. Mm -hmm. The motivation as a teacher and uh, largely as a teacher is that many students have these very personal questions. Where do I fit in this story? Especially in our age, as so many are wondering, what is it to be embodied in a particular sex? How do I express that faithfully? These conflated, <laughs> these questions. We speak of God in gendered terms. I'm a gendered being. How do I make sense of that? Hmm. So it was both a pastoral motivation for my students and my own intellectual curiosity that wanted to get at this issue. That's good. That's good. Um, I took a quick look at your your bio because, as I alluded, I knew some things about you, but and, and of course, a you know, two hundred word bio isn't going to tell me everything about you. So, one, I discovered that you are apparently a runner. Is this accurate? Right, that's yeah. right. Okay, so are, what are you training for right now? Oh, you know, um, I'm not. I would like to run a marathon again next fall, but had yeah. not start training. So, I, I I'm one of those weird people that I love running. Um, <laughs> you, so actually I the, you actually enjoy you actually enjoy running. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think I've got probably one more marathon in me. I'd like to do New York, so mm. maybe that is the goal for next fall. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a good goal. Uh, and so that you're also a rector at a local, I'm going to guess it's called an Episcopal church in Canada. We That's call correct. it an Anglican church. Uh, so, hey, Wesleyans were John Wesley himself. He was one of those people. But I admit my ignorance in the sense that I don't necessarily even know what a rector is. So what what is a rector? Mm. So that would be the other term for pastor. So, And I'm an associate. And so we have a full-time rector who's actually been there for 30 years. And he just retired. This this week was uh, was the end for him. So our church is in a, a quite a, a major transition. I mean, he had ended a fruitful ministry and just discerned it was time. And so I'm very part-time. And so my responsibilities will include preaching monthly, being present to administer Eucharist each week leading a Bible study, doing pastoral care as I can. Uh, I'm very full-time at school. Uh, this is a very full job. And now with kind of writing and traveling, it's even more full than it used to be. And yet being tethered, being anchored in a particular Christian community is, I think, very important and getting a chance to use my gifts there. So I've been ordained since 2016 and have worshipped at this congregation since I moved to Wheaton, so 12 years, and then served in a leading capacity since 2016. So fair to say uh, you are a woman. You would right. you would identify that way. Uh, that. You seem to have, uh, and the running was kind of ancillary to it, but that's interesting. <laughs> I like to run as well. So uh, you oh. have a history with, with faith. Uh, you have a history with God, and you are uh, not only an academic, but you are an actual member of the clergy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have, it, it's easy to see, so why might I want to write a book that helps yeah. Yes. <laughs> Help see why exactly. women can be, uh, you know, fully entrenched and fully mm -hmm. active members of the body of Christ. Uh, the one of the quotes um, that you had right near the end here, for the love of Michael. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Page 144. <laughs> so, okay. <clears throat> Just as men are encouraged to imagine themselves as members of the bride, 
being the church. Women should be freely encouraged to imagine themselves as members of Christ, the bridegroom. As men can represent the church, so can women represent Christ. Um, I, so I thought that kind of, and that's kind of, you're nearing the end of the book, but I, I, I thought to myself, that's kind of a nice little decoder key for part of the purpose of, of this, because as you read reviews about not just this book in particular, but a lot of books that seem to maybe push against some evangelical trends or, you know, some, some history of certain kind of Christian traditions that might involve gender, might involve sexuality, there often always seems to be loaded a presumption that the that all of the bathwater uh, on and all of the baby are they're both planning to go out the window at the same time with <laughs> the person who's creating this book, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's a it's an overarching attack at orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a way of kind of undermining the whole kit and the caboodle at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that you were very very measured with this book as you went along to almost maybe go out of your way to say, you know, and you do multiple times say, I, I affirm orthodoxy and here's how I believe that what I'm doing is, is affirming orthodoxy. Why was that so important for you in the process? I guess at base, I am committed to this faith. Uh, I think I have a line somewhere, which I really adopt from many writers who have been hurt by Christian organizations or spaces. And yet they say, I don't want to let go of Jesus. (laughs) Or as the disciples say, like, who else has the words of life? And so fundamentally, I want to be committed and faithful to the Lord. And I think this is one thing about my conversion to be part of the Anglican communion. I grew up Southern Baptist, many appreciations for the love and the teaching of scripture. And yet I was hungry to connect to more than the Bible, to tradition. Mm -hmm. And so it is of high importance to me that I am attentive to how Christians have thought about our faith for thousands of years. I think there are ways in which we haven't, now I at the end of the day, I am a Protestant, and so I don't believe that the tradition, I think we can question it or push back at times. But if I can align with it, I think that is a good thing, especially something as basic as the creeds. And so I, I really see my book as a lengthy essay on several of the important lines in the creed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived from the Virgin Mary. I don't think I'm saying anything new, but I think I'm saying it maybe in a way that hasn't often been said in more conservative Christian spaces. So that's incredibly important to me. It was also important to me. You have you have smelled correctly. You've, you've kind of snuffed out that uh, women in ministry is an overarching question of my life personally, but also I feel a sense of call to encourage other women who are sensing that God is leading them in that direction. But I didn't want this to be another women in ministry book. There are already really good ones out there. And often those are only read by the side that already agree, right? There's so little reaching across the aisle. And I don't think that's the fault of other authors. It's just how things are. So my hope was, even if people end up saying, no, I don't believe that women should be priests, um, that they could find other good things in this book. Uh, Now that may be an idealist kind of hope, uh, but that was what I was aiming. I didn't want to shut the door to a reader right at the beginning. And yet I wanted to, especially with this question of in persona Christi, this is more of the sacramental Anglo-Catholic side of really only men can represent Jesus 
that didn't seem true to me to the affirmation of the virginal conception. There's something distinct about Jesus's embodiment that men don't have a corner on that market, I believe. Uh, and yet, um, Faithful friends will say, no, it's really important to me that only men can stand in this role. I disagree. I disagree precedently, but I still hope they might find other things of benefit in this book, uh, namely about how we address God. I think wherever you fall on the women in ministry question, those things can be helpful. Yeah, it's good. So you mentioned the creeds. So one of the first ones, uh, well, the first lines of most of them that I can think of is I believe in God the Father. Right. Exactly. This is this ends exactly. up being like, uh, you know, like it's got, got some pretty prime real estate. You might not remember about the Catholicity of the church and all these other things at the end, but you'll remember, I believe in God, the father, mm-hmm. or we'll remember, you know, the, even those people who don't, you know, if you come from a tradition that doesn't even know what a creed is, it's at least conceivable that you've heard our father who art in heaven. Right. So this idea of God as father is it's primordial in, in the Christian mm-hmm. faith. Yes. Um, but again, you're not trying, and this is the great twist. Oh, <laughs> I was, didn't see that coming. Uh, exactly. M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan move. You're not actually trying to say that we should not call God Father. Right. You are trying to say we should vehemently oppose the conception that God is male. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, can you unpack a little bit of that for us? Yeah. Sure. And I think the title, uh, which I knew was provocative, But unfortunately, I think some people have read the title Women and the Gender of God, which is an apt description of what this book is. I'm really interested in telling women you matter to God and interrogating what do we do with gendered language for God. So that is a true statement. I believe that a quick read of that title, people have thought, oh, she's calling God a woman. Uh, right. Like, and so, but if, if one uh, could even read the paragraph on the back or on Amazon, <laughs> you would realize that's not what I'm saying. Um, so yes, father language explodes in the new Testament. This is a theme that appears a handful of time in the old Testament. Marianne, Mary, mine, uh, uh, Marianne, my Thompson's promise of the father was really helpful for me early on in my work on this. And so I wanted to deal with this language that we hear so frequently. And also, I don't think I'm saying anything radical in saying that God is not male, right? Any theologian would agree God is creator, not creation. And yet, over the last year, I've realized on an even deeper level, this assumption of God's maleness is out there. And it's pretty rampant (laughs) among Christian people. And so I think we need to do a good job of unsettling that Number one, because it's not true. It doesn't respect the transcendence of God. And then it also leads to some damaging lessening of women because this assumption, if if God is male, and again, that's un, uninterrogated. People don't kind of, but it's right there below the surface. God is male, then yeah, actually men, men kind of have a preference or, or, you know, privilege in Christian spaces that women don't have. And I don't think that is the message that we get throughout scripture uh, with the creation of male and female in the image of God, all the way to the inclusion of men and women in the baptismal co- covenants of the New Testament. So how can we rightly understand who God is? And there are other, we could treat God as judge, as warrior. There's so many images for God. Kent Sulin's The Divine Names is an excellent treatment. We have a lot of language and yet Father is really prominent. And so I believe First and foremost, God is our father because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So the way to understand this language correctly is by looking through the lens of the incarnation. And so exegetically, that's largely what I'm trying to do in the book is attend to Mary's story uh, for the valuing of women, and then to look at the birth of Christ through her as a way of understanding God's fatherhood, uh, not as something we project up. Oh, we see what fathers are. God must be like that. But this completely unparalleled revelation that God the Son has become human, and then God the Father is revealed in the person of the Son. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, on page uh, 112, you say Christians call God Father because, mm -hmm. according to the documents of the New Testament, Jesus did so. Mm -hmm. um, and then later on, uh, near the end, actually, in the, I believe this is in the appendix, you say Paul's mm -hmm. letters demonstrate that Christian communities thought of God as Father, even as their Father because Jesus, their Lord, was God's son. So Pretty this fair. relationality, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, there's also this other place where you say, um, the reason that Jesus, I mean, you, you allude to the fact that if, if Jesus, is, if it's always about the relationship between Jesus and I'm gonna say God the Father, yeah. um, because we'll have to come back to the idea that there's Trinity action going on here, and so yeah. that, that yeah. eclipses my world, well, I can't really understand all that. So the reason that, so Jesus, it, it was only the relationship to his begetting, then he could have referred to God as mm. really parent or even mm. as mother. At that point in time, that's where you kind of use the word. It's like, oh, she said it. Could you yeah. but, but then you said the reason that he referred to God as father is because he already had a mother and that mother mm. was Mary, right? Yeah. And so there is, it's, it's in the incarnation that, that title becomes most, I guess, enfleshed or like explicit, yeah. right? It becomes, it becomes something that's actually tangible. Um, but what do you make of then the idea? Because we're we're referring to the grounded being, the 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 originator, the one who begat. We're referring yeah. to him as God. Mm -hmm. We're referring to yeah. Sorry, uh, pronouns become yes, challenging. Does. We're referring to him as God, uh, and yet when the the word God does also refer equally, as mm -hmm. far as I understand, to both Jesus. And to the Holy Spirit. And so yeah. we have this kind of recursive conundrum that comes mm -hmm. to us if we want to say that Jesus, the embodied man who was born mm -hmm. of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that he was male. And you yes. don't you don't intend to this is a move that I think some people have made and you allude to in the book. You don't intend to try to make a move and say that the man Jesus was the person Jesus? You you do right. affirm you do affirm his masculinity, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. That is so correct. then, so then, how's the how do you process through that idea of saying then that God is not male? Right, yeah. it, and this is very difficult because we are told that Christ is the image of God, right? It, it, um, even Hebrews gives us this language, the radiance of God's being. And so many have made the, uh, the assumption, oh, well, Jesus is male. The scriptures seem quite clear about that. There really are no questions about that. And so if he's the image of God, then God must be male. And so we're, we're edging upon his humanity we should not take all aspects of his humanity and then imagine that those are true of God. So, um, right, we would say that God does not have uh, body parts. God is not limited to the first century. Right? We, we kind of are able to distinguish there are aspects that 
the son takes on in the incarnation. And that's the grace of the incarnation, right? He takes on flesh when God did not have flesh before. Uh, there, there's this condescension as we get in Philippians 2. And so we don't take all of those aspects and then project them up to God. It's interesting to me that we seem kind of naturally able to do that with various aspects about his demographics, right? And yet there's this kind of slippage with maleness. And I think that's due to, again, the dominantly masculine terms for God in scripture. And so we are able to say that the son is eternal and creator and not embodied and God and not creation, all of those distinctives. And yet in this act of grace, takes on a particular humanity. And that's really important for us because humans are not general humans. We are particular people. And so for him to save us, he too needed to be particular of a particular family and through this particular woman, right? He becomes human as we all do by being born of a woman, as Paul says, the first statement about the incarnation in Galatians 4.4, chronologically at least. So we have to keep that respect of the divinity and the humanity of the son and not inappropriately project human characteristics back up to the triune God or God, the father. Is that Mm -hmm. kind of what you're wondering, Mark? Does that, does that help a bit? Yeah, I think that does. I don't think it kicks it down, kicks the can down the road. Um, I do anything that relates to Trinity for me, when I try to consider it, I usually end up with a mild headache and, and, um, but also encouraged in some respects. It's, it's a beautiful thing to kind of consider. But yes, I think, like right away, one of the things I wrote down was, uh, and this, hopefully saying this out loud isn't a problem, but it would mean that God is not Jewish either, right? Because like, oh. because we we lean hard on the idea that, or at least some people are, are import, think mm. it important to lean hard on the on the idea that Jesus was Jewish, right? Like, but he actually was an, an ethnically yeah. embodied human as well. Yeah. But that wouldn't mean that we would then back project, back project or retro mm-hmm. view uh, God the Father as yes. Jewish, because right. that's a that's something that's a it's it's a real world implication of a, of an of an individual, but it's a it's a it's a non eternal aspect of the individual. I think maybe where this becomes slipperier mm. is when we start to think about the idea that it's like, well, it's, it seems to be important in some orthodox conceptions of theology and of the, the afterlife or the resurrection that Jesus is in some way still embodied. So Absolutely. like, yeah. so his ethnicity could be, again, that's to the degree that ethnicity is DNA versus culture. Mm. Though, like culture is super malleable and kind of goes away. DNA is like, you know, what color eyes you're going to have. Like, that's not something that is culturally bound. That's like a, a physical a- aspect of, of who you are. So the kind of genitalia <laughs> that you would have, whatever, like those things are like, are they still part of the Godhead yeah. today? That's that's the kind of difficult, yes. maybe unanswerable, maybe, maybe incredibly answerable, or also maybe somewhat mysterious questions that we wrestle with. Definitely, definitely some mystery there. Um, I would love to comment on on your statement about God being Jewish. I think, again, I I kind of hesitated because I 
there's like a yes and there, right? Mm -hmm. But in a way that similarly respects the transcendence of God. I think this is so much the program of Israel's scriptures, Israel's prophets. God is not one of many gods, right? And so to say that God is Jewish would almost be to demote God to, well, God is the God of this nation and there are other gods of other nations. The, the, the program of Israel is to say, God, our God is the God of the universe, the God of all creation. And yet also then God's election of Israel, the covenant through this particular people, mm -hmm. again, that is a preview of the kind of grace that will be given in the particularity of the incarnation. God is not equally accessible. God said through this family, this kind of messed up, weird, small family, right? I'm, I'm thinking about the Abrahamic narratives, right? He's not the paragon of virtue. And yet God says through this, I will then be manifest to all because I am God of all as creator and through election, I will be blessing all people through this family. So that's very important to retain. As far as the uh, resurrection and ascension, such an important question. I believe that the New Testament scriptures, and here I'm gonna depend on my work on Hebrews because the other half of my scholarly life is Hebrews and the importance of the ascension, that Christ is embodied at the hand, the right hand of the Father. Yes, we have reached a mystery there. How does that work in triunity? And yet his resurrected flesh, his male body, his Jewish body reigning in heaven, the way the Hebrews talks about that is that he is our pioneer, our archegos, the one who has um, plotted the trail so that we too someday as resurrected embodied humans will dwell in the presence of God. And so I, I take that as deeply powerful. And it's been a piece of my own spiritual life, Hebrews 7, 25 through 28, that Christ is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Um, my friend David Moffat, who writes on Hebrews, repeatedly says, there is Jewish flesh in heaven. We cannot forget of the election of Israel, nor would Paul ever have us to do so, right? Paul is rather adamant, adamant that that is the display of the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. And then I will add, and where does that Jewish flesh come from? From Mary. And so this, this participation of her willingness to give of her body and flesh for the son to become human is retained in the resurrection and the ascension. Now, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, the seed and the plant, death and resurrection, we're talking about things that we can't quite understand. And yet this isn't a brand new body. This is the body that was crucified and, and raised again and is now at the right hand. So that inclusion of who we are in Christ remains even today in his advocacy. Yeah. And that pioneering work of his has made it such that uh, in heaven, there are people from every tribe tongue and nation exactly. right so there's exactly. there's jewish flesh and then even some yeah. maybe even some irish flesh up there it's hard to absolutely. say we'll to say. absolutely yeah. yes yeah. and that's the picture we get in hebrews 11 to 12 of this community of the faithful who yeah. are cheering the rest of us on now they're not yet resurrected right and so maybe their flesh isn't there but somehow being absent right. from the body they're present with the lord and we are all looking forward to this coming perfection of resurrection mm -hmm. that's good good reminder good reminder uh so one of the ways then, so without denying that Jesus is male, mm -hmm. uh, we're still saying the idea that the, the Godhead, the Godhead itself has mm -hmm. no gender. Uh, the Godhead That's itself exactly. is before gender and after yeah. gender and yeah. reigns in the midst of gender. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the ways that you do that is by making much of Mary as we, we should talk, uh, I think making the appropriate 
Mm. <laughs> uh, historical amount of Mary. Um, but but even before we get there, one of the things that you point out is um, th- that you know, you know, I believe in God the Father, and He is the one. He's the one who begot. Begat yes. the word, yeah, begotten, uh, he, who begets. Uh, yes. So, but you say here in page 97, males do not procreate mm-hmm. like God yes. creates. Yes. Men always need a partner to procreate, mm-hmm. but God did not need a partner to create, right? This is where the, one of the very ways that we can see that the maleness, the fatherness of God does not equate to the, the maleness of God. Are there people in the past who did try to make kind of like a, a spirit flesh um, mm-hmm. kind of initiator uh, yeah. raw material kind of like in the beginning God almost partners with like mother earth kind of Gaia kind of a thing. Like, is this, is this a, this is not a Christian conception of, mm-hmm. of how this works, but are there, is that a, a move that some people have made historically to try to explain how God is the, the one who, puts the seed as it were and he is part of a the powerful initiator part of a binary that actually leads to creation yes you know you're precisely right and this was the act of discovery in my research for this book is this idea which i think is both a misunderstanding of human conception and a demotion of god's transcendence actually is apparent in many writers Mm. and and but i understand the logic right god is father and while we are in relationship with god as father because of jesus we also are taught that this relation between father and son is eternal and this is a place that i think i could have had more clarity in the book i really want to say clearly i affirm the eternal relationship between father and son But where I want to problematize that language is that we cannot look to human conception. And here I think it's important to mention an Aristotelian idea of conception, just as you've articulated it, that in human conception, men kind of give the energizing force and women just create, just contribute this kind of inert material. And so that was pretty easily mapped onto God is spirit, and then God hovers over the waters, and there's where you get creation. But now we know, and actually, I think even Aristotle uh, was not the only view of conception, so it's even more complicated in the ancient world. But now we know full well that (laughs) the contribution to a new human life is equal from the male and the female. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of that giving from the body. Some authors have said, oh, father is the right language for God because of that distinction between God as creator and creation. If we called God mother, we would be led into pantheism. Uh, And and I I pushed against that because I said, actually, in conception, there's this equality. Both men and women contribute something of their bodies to the formation of this child. Where I've grown in my understanding, and this I want to continue to develop, is that I think those authors are actually on to something not with conception. So we don't look at human conception and say, oh, calling God father is better. But in the issue of gestation, in pregnancy, there is a difference. Mm -hmm. There is a difference in that a child is within the body of the mother and not within the body of the father. And so while I believe that father and son language is revealed to us in the incarnation, right? I mean, when we try to talk about eternal relations, we have to recognize We're trying to talk about an infinite God and we're finite people. We're never going to make it. (laughs) All of our language is uh, analogical and imperfect. 
And yet, I actually think there's a fittingness in referring to the eternal relationship as father and son, because that picture of gestation helps us to see both the relation between the unbegotten and the begotten, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and yet the distinction, right? Mm -hmm. Father and son are distinct during pregnancy in a way that mother and son or mother and child are not. Mm -hmm. And so I want to build upon, because so many reviewers have, number one, imagined, I don't believe in eternal generation, which is not the case, or that I'm just kind of being willy-nilly that we could call God anything. Uh, I actually want to see that the revelation of the incarnation in which God causes the birth of the son through Mary, hence father language, there is a fittingness to that in the eternal relations. But mm -hmm. pregnancy is the mo best model to look at that, not, not conception. Yeah. So I don't know if that helps with some of your questions. Yes, we're on the edge of mystery here, but God also says reason together. I, I know some authors have said, God gave us this language, God gave us masculine pronouns, just use it, don't ask questions, and even have been threatened by the fact that I'm asking questions. Mm -hmm. But I encounter so many people in church and in my classroom who want to know why why is it this way and i don't think that's a bad question to ask <laughs> i think we might get to the place of saying we don't know but we've been invited to reason and especially for people who feel left out of all the masculine language i need to have a better answer than god said it i don't know I think we can have a better answer than that. Uh, an answer that invites people into seeing uh, their wantedness by God in this relationship. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that you write in the book that are, uh, if you, you know, you wouldn't, they wouldn't make bumper stickers necessarily, but they they are powerful and important things. Like on page sixty one, like one of the things you mentioned is in in the incarnation, God has deemed the female body the impure, bleeding female body, worthy to handle the most sacred of all things, uh, the very body of God. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful image. People don't necessarily want to drive around with, you know, the word bleeding hanging out the back of their car. But, but, it, but I mean, it is important because of the, and I, I'm stepping out of my lane in terms of things that I know well, only things that I've been exposed to. Like, I, I'm thinking of like, um, Matthew Thiessen's, um, yes, Jesus exactly. and the, uh, was it about the death of the, forces, anyway, of darkness. forces of death, forces of death. Um, yeah. uh, in reading through that, he does a, a, a masterful job of pointing out just like how, um, you know, the, these purity laws and these kind of laws of like, uh, what would make someone unclean as it were before, mm -hmm. before God in, in temple worship, particularly, these are the things that Jesus spent so much of his time kind of eradicating and pushing back. Right. Um, but yeah, th that he would be willing to sub subjugate himself, as it were, uh, I guess, to, to put himself in these places that most of his contemporaries viewed as less than, and yeah. would he would voluntarily go through that kind of process. It says a lot about, uh, I guess, about the process and about the people who are involved in the process. And this is where Mary comes to play. I mean, you do uh, a tremendous work uh, kind of describing maybe what you call the agency that, that Mary has, uh, that would be a, maybe a very modern take on it. Um, right. consent, Mary, Mary consents, yes. uh, in, in ways that I guess you're trying to say she wouldn't have needed to have in some ways. So like in, in the ancient world, uh, women, 
I mean, in different ways at different times, women seem to have less agency th- right. th- than men did. And that's not in the ancient world. That's possibly in the world today, but it's a conversation for another another podcast. Mm-hmm. But but you, you mentioned the idea that when, when you, you use the, the, the visit to, to Zechariah and the visit to, to Mary as uh, kind of as, as foils to each other to drive the differences, I guess, between the two interactions. Uh, so maybe do you want to talk about just in short, some of the things that you notice when you kind of put them on in an interlinear style and kind of go back and forth. Right. And I'm trained by those who read Luke as a good narrative and all my footnotes have lots of great resources for that. But I think Luke very much says, all right, I'm going to tell you two annunciation stories. One by an older barren uh, uh, whose wife is barren, a priest who goes into the temple, uh, who conceivably has been praying for a child and is in the holiest place uh, in the nation of Israel. And then this angel comes and says, your prayers will be answered. He's like, "Uh, how is this going to work? Which later on, Luke says explicitly, this question arose out of a place of doubt. Conversely, you have a young betrothed woman, right? If we're doing kind of scales of honor, (laughs) they are in vastly different places. And here the angel is sent directly to her space. So she doesn't have to come to the temple. Mm -hmm. Uh, God through the messenger comes to her and she too is inquisitive, right? I, I was just discussing with my students. Notice that when she is given this offer, she doesn't immediately say, yes, I want to be the mother of the Messiah which would have been an incredible honor. Um, She is disturbed. She is hesitant. She asks questions. How will this be? And in comparison with Zechariah, where it's explicitly said he asked the question out of doubt, we aren't told that with Mary. And it's a question more like, tell me a little bit more how this will unfold. And that allows Gabriel to make this pronouncement yeah, you've heard son of God language before in Israel's scripture, referring to the king as a way of talking about his represented representative status for the people of Israel. Now this language of son of God, holy child, son of the most high, uh, this has now been manifest in a way that is no longer just, oh, a metaphor, but this will be true. Your child will be the son of God. And then she is given the opportunity to accept that. So I recognize that consent is a modern term. But the reason I chose to write about that twofold, number one, there are several authors who have said this looks like a situation in which God demands or is forcing a pregnancy on a young girl. Mm -hmm. I grew up in very healthy Christian spaces. I also am not the kind of person that asks hard questions. You might not know that from the book, but that's not my nature. I didn't be like, oh, cool, whatever someone says, I'll believe. Uh, But in reading authors who say, I mean, chiefly Mary Daly, who is known for her intense phrases, Mary is the total rape victim. It's like, oh my goodness, how might we respond to someone who's very critical to Christian faith? Uh, Could I have an answer for that? Mm -hmm. And the other reason I thought it was vitally important is that I imagine Luke's first readers also would have asked that question because there are so many stories of the gods imposing themselves upon women. I I just came to the realization Luke did not have to tell us the story. (laughs) Uh, And there's a lot of literature that says, oh, Luke is just trying to create this kind of mythical beginning of Jesus 
I believe that he's causing way more trouble for himself than any benefit because <laughs> he's opening himself up to all of these questions, right? He could have gone the vehicle of Mark and just said, adult life of Jesus. We're just going to focus on that. By telling the story, he invites these comparisons with the narratives of Zeus, etc. And so Luke is so careful to show Mary has an opportunity to say yes. And while the word consent might be a modern one, in the early church, and this is across all branches of the tradition, there is a adamant belief in Mary's agency, in her willingness, her fiat. Mm -hmm. Everyone says she gets to say yes to this. Notice that Gabriel, when he tells her, he doesn't say you have already conceived. You're already pregnant. Guess what? No, he says you will, right? This is in the future. And she has to accept this, this offer that's still in the future. And that became a vital picture of how salvation unfolds, actually. That, that God in grace invites us. God is the initiator. And again, I would say initiation is a divine quality, not a masculine one. Mm -hmm. But God initiates. And yet Mary is, Mary could have said no. Uh, she didn't. She said yes. And she did it. I think with knowledge of both the honor that would come and the potential cost. She was mm -hmm. old enough to know, number one, I'm going to be pregnant, not with my betrothed husband's child. This is going to be a problem. And keep in mind, by the time we get to Joseph's story in Matthew, Mary is already pregnant. So she says yes to this without knowing how Joseph will react. She has no idea that he will take her into his home or not. She also recognizes that the Jewish Messiah is going to be a competitor with Caesar, and yet she accepts this cost. Uh, and so I think her thoughtful response gives us a picture of how salvation, God's initiating grace, comes to us. And then we can say, no, thank you. I don't want the honor. I don't want the cost. And yet we're called to take up our cross and the abundant life offered therein. Wow, there's a lot right there. So like the first thing is, is I, and I hadn't really, I guess, pondered that much how how much she would have been looking ahead to like even the idea that you know uh that she might be mothering uh somebody who is going to be kicking up a big fuss that's going to end up having a lot of you I mean obviously we end up seeing at the end of mary's life not just in in uh, the biblical text but obviously in kind of traditions that get handed out after that and then a lot of artistic renditions of of those traditions then is she's quite an a tr almost a tragic character in some respects, right? Because of the pain that she ends up experiencing. Yeah, right. uh, I mean, uh, she obviously, as you point out in the book, there's also tremendous power that flows kind of through her and through her ministry mm -hmm. because of the things that happen. But, but yeah, I mean, to know if she had even an inkling of all those mm -hmm. things for her to say yes to that would have been uh, a tremendous act of not just faith, but faithfulness, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, and on page 75, you say coercion need not explain itself, but Gabriel does, right? So there's this idea that he's taking the time to, yeah. it's funny because the language itself, I think it can be interpreted, and I think you acknowledge that it can be interpreted both ways. It's like, it's a you will scenario, right? right? right. It's not a, would you please? Um, That's right. I, I That's often right. tell my kids, that I don't think there's a Hebrew word for please. So yeah. <laughs> um, that wouldn't have been there, but like, nonetheless, it, you can read it both in, in any kind of translation as a statement, but you mentioned that he hangs out until the may it be done to me according to your, yeah. your will happens there. So there, there is clearly a way of interpreting it where her divine fiat is, is, um, 
is important to, to how this lays itself out. But when you were unpacking that just a moment ago and you were kind of comparing to how uh, God is the initiator, uh, especially in, in the, the conversation of salvation, mm-hmm. it suddenly occurred to me where maybe some pushback comes from this whole mm. can of worms that you're, you're, you're snacking yeah. open here, yeah. which is that like, cause the, I mean, this is one theological consideration, obviously a very large one, but it's only, it, it is one post in a series of theological conversations that people have as they're kind of thinking through their whole way of approaching not only God, but the world and, mm. um, and divine initiation as being something that you cannot resist irresistible mm. grace, as it were, of course, of course. is a, an important uh, yeah. thing that some people hold in terms of their mm-hmm. theological convictions. And so right. do you find that it, uh, if you don't mind commenting, I always tell people they can say, they say, I, I refuse to answer this question. That's fine. I can, I can edit it out. But do you find that it may be people who, who do hold on to that particular type of theology are the ones who are as closed to this kind of conversation that you're bringing forward? Yeah, no, that's very, I think, of course, there's a spectrum there. I think a thin understanding of a reformed doctrine um, would be like, we can't even ask of course she had to do this, but but very respected and faithful reformed theologians with whom I'm in dialogue, both in print and in person, I think everyone acknowledges that even if that grace is so wonderful that it's irresistible, God still has made space for an agreement. Uh, and, and we really see this throughout the gospel narratives as well. People follow Jesus. Now, it might have been so amazing that they would have done nothing other than follow. So I think that tension could be held of this grace is irresistible. And yet God leaves space both for Mary and for all of us to verbally say yes. (laughs) Uh, Now, I have to admit, I I am more in the direction of uh, an Arminian position that, that God I think that we could reject God. Uh, And so it could be that that's my upbringing and I've just stayed in that line of thinking. I have to admit that in studying this and in seeing the widespread support for her agency, for her consent, even among reformed writers, it has pushed me further into believing that uh, God allows uh, for humans to reject God's offer. And mm-hmm. and my dear reformed friends might say, nope, you've misunderstood it. And, and I'll just own it. Salvation is mystery. We can't. But, but studying Mary's story has maybe prodded me to say that seems a more coherent reading of the whole. But I'm happy to be corrected by my uh, reformed friends. Or maybe we'll say we just have to hold the tension. Yeah. Um, th- there's a certain kind of... Again, I think it's quite a thin, but again, maybe popularized reformed version of um, God is all powerful. God just does whatever God wants and we can't question it. That's not the God that I have seen in my studies of scripture. So I would certainly want to reject that. And I think the incarnation stands, the narratives, the enunciation narrative stands against that. Because then you have the God of the pantheon, of the Roman pantheon, and, and the God of Israel is is different. Yes. Praise, praise him for that. Yes. That's, that's good news for all of us. Um, yeah, you do a lot of great work with the body of Mary. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I want to encourage uh, people definitely pick up this book. Also there's the, uh, so I, I have my favorite way of doing things is if, if I get the physical book, uh-huh. I get, I get the audio book 
And if I can afford it, I'll get the ebook because then you can listen to the audiobook, which is in this case read by the very Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. Always night, nice. well, always a bonus. I'm not when the very because I'm not a bishop, so just oh, dang it! Well, I see you seem you seem very reverent to me. Uh, so the uh, yeah, so you, you get the and then you get physical physical book because you can underline things, you make notes, and then if you're like me and you're like I know it's in here somewhere but I can't quite find it, you get the ebook and then you can literally wow. search it. It's a it's a tr- speaking of three in one, it's a trifecta <laughs> uh, that we, we I, I highly encourage. So I want you to get the book and, and read all of it because it is even though I said at the beginning it's technical. It that might mean that there will be some times where you'll go, oops, and you'll need to stop and you'll need to Google and you'll need to spend two to three minutes on a reputable site just to kind of bring up some terms. But uh, anybody who is motivated can 100 percent work their way through this and get a lot out of it. Um, She does, however, seem to implicate C.S. Lewis in some semi negative light, not uh, as, as at least a foil against her particular argument in the book, which I think I thought that evangelicals weren't allowed to do that. Yes. You know, I, I have I have learned that in some spaces, uh, my book is not liked because I, I've not respected our saint, our St. Louis. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I do respect a lot about him. And I think it's a Dorothy Sayers quote, which might be apocryphal, but I've heard someone say it, that she said, there's so much I've learned from my friend, Clive, uh, but um, you know he's just a stodgy old man when it comes to women, uh, and and he at least in his God and the priestesses, I think he absolutely falls into the trap of masculinizing God. So mm-hmm. um, I feel comfortable naming that, and then I also need to learn from him in all other wonderful ways, and not get kind of you know uh, get, get a grudge against him uh, yeah, for that. Yes. Good. He's quite a, quite a fiction writer at the very least. Quite a, yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, his treatment of gender in Paralandia, for in- instance, is, is also really interesting. And um, I don't agree with so. <laughs> yes, I saw that the other day. I think Patrick Schreiner uh, put it online. And I was, like, I was like, I was like, oh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I only got through this out of the silent planet, I think, is as far as I got on that one. So I yeah. don't think I... Um, so I, I want to wrap up here and be respectful of your time. It was interesting on page 130, you noted, and you actually kind of alluded to this earlier, the doctrine of the virgin birth was actually attacked more frequently uh, when it comes to um, kind of early Christian fathers, I believe is the context, mm. or mothers, but they didn't write a lot, it seems, because it was common in pagan belief, mm-hmm. more so than because it was unlikely in nature. It was its mm-hmm. resemblance to the metamorphosis of the gods of antiquity that actually exposed a Christian nerve what's the what's the nerve that's being exposed there yeah that actually goes back to our conversation on consent uh what i was saying about luke so i think in a modern appropriation people are like virgin birth that's crazy science doesn't work that way um and maybe my counter to that is but if you believe in resurrection also human life doesn't work that way so i i'm oh so i'm curious why people have had more doubt i've heard lots of people say oh i cross my fingers when we come to that line in the creed i don't know why resurrection would be more plausible to one than virginal conception but there are other more responsible arguments that i engage with in the book so that's kind of a modern question we understand science now this can't be um the ancient question was really more oh my goodness this makes jesus sound like 
one of the demigods and how and so the early questions i mean i think this actually gives rise to celsus's who is a critic of christianity his comment oh well mary must have been raped right if luke hadn't and matthew hadn't introduced the story um maybe no one would have said that seems crazy i bet it was something more salacious and dark than that and so it's this nerve of either this kind of demigod or something untoward has happened because who can buy virginal conception? I mean, this is not something that are that's in the messianic prophecies of Israel. No one thought the Messiah would be virginally conceived, and so it's a it, it strikes this nerve of wait 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 wait. But I I read in Isaiah. Ah. Oh, got it. Okay, sorry. Yes, I should. I should. Okay. I'm just kidding. Maybe we don't want to take the time to go to that. <laughs> you, you, you can look it up, people. You can look it up. It's not good. original. It yeah, probably it's, it's a young woman. It's a very interesting, yeah, it's a very, it's a fun, fun, fun with words, fun with words when it comes to the Isaiah exactly. prophecy, but nonetheless. Okay, yes. So, so you're saying that it's basically in large part because it actually pointed to something that early Christians didn't want to necessarily be true about their God. They didn't want their God to be perceived as someone who would come in and unilaterally exactly. infringe himself, as it were, infringe upon the rights of not just a woman, but on, on humanity in general. They, they, they perceived God they did not perceive that that was who God was because I mean, if you think about it, that's makes total sense. Christianity wasn't being born out that way. Like when you look at what was happening around them, they, how could you believe in a God that would just, that could just come over and and mow, mow down, you know, people's against their will when they, their own compatriots were being mowed down against their will, right? There's no, there'd be such an incredible cognitive dissonance that would need to be held in that respect. And I mean, it hits at, and and I think this delicate issue needs to be named. It's not just a general like, hey, you have to join the Christian movement. This is a young woman and a pregnancy, right? There's sexuality and, and kind of all people, if we think about nations conquering other nations, one of the most heartbreaking aspects is rape, right? And so, I mean, this, this, this particularity of this kind of core sacrosanct issue in, in human life that's what's at stake here. Uh, and yet I believe that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to tell this account, both to show Mary's willingness in participation and because there's something vital about the revelation of God disclosed therein. This mm. story was worth telling, even given the risk. Yes. Well, on, we're going to wrap up here with on page 167 and 168. It's a, it's a bit of a heavy quote, but I think it's worth reading because you talk about you know, here, while Joseph is present, now we're talking about the idea that when um, this is when they find Jesus at the temple, correct? And they're like, "What do yes. you do? What have you done? You know, you left, you 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 completely left us high and dry. We're halfway back to anyway." So they come back, they find him at the temple, and then Mary interacts with with Jesus directly and says, "Here, while Joseph, the you know, I guess what people would consider the father, the purported father, while Joseph, the man, is present, Mary." Jesus' mother is the parent who does the explicit teaching. Similarly, when the evangelist John portrays the inaugural sign of Jesus' ministry, right? This is at the wedding in Cana. It's his mother's influence that prods him to meet needs, even as he carries out the divine will. In both instances, Mary facilitates his learning of what it is to obey God. She mothers God. God not only allows it, but he also benefits from it. And so women and the gender of God is not just, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's not about, it's not saying that God is 
a woman. It's saying that God is the God of men and women, and that he is the creator and father of men and women, and that he has willingly, through Christ, entered into uh, a, a deep and a meaningful relationship with both men and and with, with women. And so the idea, like, you know, a lot of people who have grown up in traditions like mine, I can't speak exactly to yours, tend to be pretty uncomfortable with, you know, Mary being referred to in some respects as the mother of God. It is what it is. It doesn't have to elevate Mary to the point that some traditions do. Um, but nor do we, as I, to use the same analogy twice in the same conversation, have to throw all the baby out uh, with the bathwater when we think about that. Because when doing so, we have probably thrown more than just a baby out with the bathwater. We've probably thrown out half of the human race and some of their God-given giftings and callings, right? So I really, really appreciate uh, your work, what you've done with this book. And uh, I know that it hasn't always been easy. So I, I, I thank you for, for pushing in that direction. What are you working on now? Um, thank you. Uh, yeah. And that's, a just the way you said that is really beautiful. I appreciate hearing it. Um, yeah. So there's a second volume to this book. When I turned the manuscript in, it had five extra chapters that the editor and I decided I'm trying to do too much in one place. So largely this was focused on the gospels. The next uh, book will be focused on Paul, uh, because Paul multiple times, uh, refers to, the birth of Jesus. And I think it might be, uh, give us some purchase on some of the seemingly intractable gender passages in Paul. So well, I think so more and cares more about Mary than we've given him uh, credit for. Well, look for women in the gender of God, the sequel, uh, sometime. Do you already have a publication date kind of like loosely lined um, up? I'm on sabbatical next fall. And so God willing, the full manuscript will be turned in a year from now. And then oh. that process takes a long time. So don't hold your breath. Uh, but I have a commentary on Hebrews coming out in May, if anybody wants, is interested in that. So that's Doesn't already in print. Or the pr process is happening. So. Beautiful. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, again, I, I thank you so much for spending the time with us here today. And uh, may God bless you as you continue to move forward. Thank you, Mark. This is a wonderful conversation. Thanks for the time. 